This is episode 10 of the Cell Strange podcast, and this is the one with Jules White. Jules is a sales coach out of the UK and she's been doing sales for around 30 years. She's had an appearance on Dragon's Den, she's up her own business, lost that business, lost a lot of things in her life, but she's finally found her path. Her company, Live It, Love It, Sell It, trade on the unique human proposition, which is human-to-human selling rather than focusing on the numbers. We get into that on this podcast and a whole lot more. Remember, if you like the podcast, visit www.saleschange.co.uk forward slash podcast, sign up to the newsletter, get it in your inbox every Monday morning. Enjoy the episode. Hello, Jules. Welcome to the Sales Change Podcast. How are you? I'm very well, Matt. Thank you very much for having me. That's all right. For the second time, because we did record this once before and I messed up the recording. I didn't press the record button, but welcome again. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it, it's good that I've got the chance to be here twice, isn't it? Yes. Eh? Yeah, yeah. I was so <laughs> desperate to have you back on the podcast because the first time that we recorded this, it was just, yeah, there was so much in there. So I couldn't let the audience not have the chance to hear from you. So shall we go back over your backstory? Let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. So tell me a bit about you. Go on. Yeah, um, I think I started when I talked about leaving school at 16 because this is a funny thing now. People just don't do it, do they? So I was just 16 when I started work, which was at NatWest Bank. And for me, my career was about earning money. I was excited about that. I was an academic. So I started this career with NatWest Bank and then obviously moved on in other sales roles and actually in lots of different sectors, which I think is one of the really lovely things I can talk about because I've experienced being in, in all of those different environments and in different um, sales positions, because my career, 32 years of my career have been in sales. So, of course, I've done the internal telesales. I've done the on the road, uh, in the car, driving miles sales. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we drove, I don't know, two, three hours for a meeting um, and then back. Can you imagine yeah. that? We didn't have Zoom in those days. We didn't even have internet, Matt, when I first started. So. no. no. I think the interesting thing about my story is that I've seen so much change, you know, and I'm sure everybody will in their lifetimes. But I think particularly from the 80s through to now, we've seen huge changes, you know, in in sales particularly and also in business. And then part of the journey is that I started uh, my own business, which was in 2005 when my son was born. So this bit of the story is where everybody realizes I'm mad. So when he was three months old, I started a business. <laughs> the ideal time. Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> kind of what you do, isn't it? You know, in between changing nappies and, and sleepless nights, you start a business. But I was excited about it and I wanted to be with Sam, but also I was so driven and entrepreneurial. I didn't want to stop work. So it was, it was that balance. So I started a business which was Party Plan, which back in the day, you know, we all loved a good party, Tupperware, underwear, you name it. But nobody was doing it with baby products. And I was like, why? This is mad. All these mums are getting together and nobody's doing parties with baby products. So I started Truly Madly Baby. And literally within, I'd say, two months of actually starting it, deciding to start the business, I saw an application for Dragon's Den on my computer. 
Wow. <laughs> this is where the audience go silent. What? Um, yeah. What? It was only the second series. So the thing about this was we'd, we'd watched that first series and watched all the entrepreneurs squirm in this very scary den. And, and for an application to pop up and me go, oh, well, I'll fill that in. I mean, I had no idea what I was thinking. Within two weeks, I was in front of the dragons pitching my business. So it's literally just... But who were the dragons at that time? So you'd have had Peter Jones because he's always been there. Yeah, uh, so I had Peter Theo. Jones. Theo was the new dragon on the block for the second yeah. season. He, he replaced Simon Woodroff, if you remember him, mm-hmm. from Yo Sushi. There was Rachel Elner from Red Letter Days. Um, there was um, Doug Richard, who was the American guy. I, I mean, don't remember Doug. Yeah. Way back, yeah. And then yeah. there was Duncan Bannatyne, who obviously we all remember, who we yeah. were probably quite fond of. I melt. <laughs> it was great. He said, I think you're truly madly, because my, <laughs> my company was called Truly Madly Baby. But so they were great. And and actually, Theo being the new dragon on the block, I think he was kind of very excited. And um, so he was pitching against Peter to invest in my my little business. And they were pushing the percentage down between them without me having to do anything, which was, <laughs> when you look back, is amusing. And I shook hands with Peter on the day um, of filming. We, I was actually in front of the dragons for two and a half hours, Matt. Wow. Not a lot of people really. And you're not allowed to take notes, are you? Has it all got to be in your head? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you need to know your pitch. You have three minutes to pitch. Literally, it is three minutes. And then you have questions after that. So we were filming for two and a half hours. Wow. So whilst there was lots of cuts to change the film, there was also quite a serious business conversation going on, which was quite interesting. The viewers get 14 minutes. Yeah. Two and a half hours. So six months later, which is about how long before it was actually on the television and, and aired, and you can't tell anybody anything, obviously. Yeah. I hadn't done the deal with Peter because the contract wasn't worth signing. My solicitor had said, don't sign it. And then we were on the television showing we had done the deal, in essence, and I got two and a half thousand emails that night into my inbox. Wow. Uh, from various people. And remember, this is 2005, Matt. This is when we don't have bandwidth. We don't have email like we had have email today. Yeah, you know? you've not got social media marketing. It's, just, no, it's, it's all nothing, raw. Nothing yeah. like that. So um, it was very exciting. And another investor stepped forward and I, I took her on board. Um, over three years, we built the business and it was wonderful. Wonderful journey. Year three, we had turned over a million. We were in profit. We had 430 consultants all over the country doing parties and inquiries from America, Australia and Europe. So it was very, very exciting. But I hadn't done any of the foundation work to support a business that grew so quickly. And what type of foundation work should you have done, Jules? I think in hindsight, stock systems. You know, I was running a stock business And my dad, 72 years old at the time, was in my warehouse and he was my stockman and he knew everything I had in there. He was wonderful. But you can't run a big business like I'd created with just dad in the warehouse, you know. I didn't have staff. We would just work 20 hours a day, seven days a week. So we did everything. And then um, I just didn't have the capacity and systems to kind of run a business of that scale. So it meant more investment, really. Was I mean, that the answer. You grew so fast. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I think, and I tell you the other thing, Matt, I was in it 
I was working in the business and not on it. Oh, yeah. So all I was doing was not firefighting, but yes, in a sense, just making sure everybody was all right. I was recruiting, marketing, creating a catalogue of products. Yeah. Three, three a year of those I did. Updated the website, you know, bought the stock, did the negotiations with the purchasing. It was all... And when in I think about would you it, that? I would have probably employed more people in the team and, and just grown a, my own internal team to support what I was doing at the time. Um, so, yeah, it, it was it was very interesting when you look back at the things that I could have done that I didn't. I was being a hero in many ways as well. Yeah. I, can but, do, I can do this myself. You know? Yeah, and that's, a, and that's a huge thing for business owners and especially new startups and entrepreneurs to actually take on board because – when you're in the business and you, and I had this conversation with Sarah Townsend on the last podcast, but actually when you're in the business and you, you've started your business to make money yeah. and then, and then handing that money over to somebody else in order to do your catalogs or to do your stock taking, you begrudge that. And then yeah. it becomes, and then you think, well, I can do that much better than the person that I want to employ. So it becomes another task that you add into your portfolio. And I've just started to outsource some of my video content creation because yes, I can do it but not at the speed that I can get somebody else to do it for a minimal yeah. fee. And it's- I, have, I have to say, though, Matt, as well, I think now outsourcing is just so great, whereas yeah. perhaps back in 2006, 2007, I'm not really – I never explored it, but I'm not sure it was quite as as well set up as it is now. I think we're yeah. more set up for outsourcing now. But also there's the control element. As you sort of mentioned just slightly there, well, no one's going to do it quite as good as I do it or, you know, the way I want it done. And I am definitely control freak territory. You know, I'll yeah. hold my hands up because I want it to be good, you know, for my my customers. Well, so. it's your brand. It's your, it's yeah, your baby. Yeah, but, you know, there's still a sense of finding the people who can still have your voice and, and show your brand in the right way. And they are, they are out there, I think. Yeah, definitely. And then your and then your business took a sour turn, didn't it? Yeah, because obviously not having all of this support to support our growth meant we needed to reinvest, which happens. It's common in businesses. And of course my investor said, Yes, you know, uncapped, I'll reinvest, but I want seventy five percent of your business. Now that was the thing for me because you know the work that she'd done in the business for me hadn't actually been that beneficial. And I'd, I'd sort of done, been doing everything. And I thought, I'm just going to be working for her. Why would I do that? So I, I said no. And within weeks, I tried to find somebody who might buy her out. But within weeks, she put us into administration and uh, closed us down. And then within a few days, opened back up as Truly Madly Baby Dragon's Den winner. Wow. But without me. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And I lost everything. You know, I really did literally lose everything. And then I had a journey of seven, eight years of loss after loss after loss, various things in life, you know, the cycle of life, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But I think we we touched on this in the last recording that we had. And I, I, I promised I wouldn't keep saying that. But you kind of found yourself um, after those seven or eight years. Yeah, and, I did. And you're in a position now where you're comfortable. Yeah, I think that's so true to say. I mean, I, I hit my 40th birthday. I was single, unemployed, bankrupt um, with a, a a child. You know, I didn't write it like that at all. Yeah. Um, so that was the starting point. It was almost like I had to start again. It was the moment, the pit moment, I think, where I had a choice of going in the corner and just crying or getting back up and starting again, which is what I did. The TEDx talk 
actually talks about that journey, I think, that I did. And I think where I really found myself was when my father died. So I'd lost my mum, I'd lost marriage, I had a a miscarriage. You know, it was a whole list of pain. It was an event after an event, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, it was really hard. Um, I lost my dad at the end of 2015. And then not long after that, I got a redundancy with three months' money. Um, And I said to you, if you remember... I'm not working for anyone again. (laughs) And I just had this desire to just, now's your time, Jules, just do something again, you know, for yourself. And finding myself, I think, was about losing my dad and realising that, you know, I, I was great. I was okay. I was good at what I was doing. I liked myself. You know, and all those internal things, which are usually yeah. the most detrimental things to us in life, quite honestly. It's not external stuff. It's much more internal stuff Definitely. that does the damage. Definitely. And I think that was my moment. And I didn't want to let my mum and dad down. I wanted them, if they were ever anywhere watching me, which I hope they are, I wanted them to see that I could be amazing and successful. And that was a real driver for me. And my son, of course, who's yeah, still yeah. here. You know, he's 16 now. So. Amazing. Um, so, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, built a career again, got redundancy. 2017, live it, love it, sell it was born. <laughs> and, it, and it's still going, strength to strength. It is. And I think, you know, testament to the fact that we've now all, and we are still going through a pandemic this year, which none of us could have written, could we, 2020? No, I mean, um, I presented a business plan in October last year, uh, so October 2019. And then by the March, it was ripped up, thrown in the bin, and we're just winging it. Yeah, Literally. well, that's it, isn't it? You know, yeah. and it's quite quite interesting, isn't it, that you say that? Because I think a lot of us feel that way. And for me, I think it was the case when COVID hit, I lost £25,000. Bang, straight away out of a really small solopreneur business. It was really hard. I sat in the kitchen and cried. I said to my son... You're quite an emotional person, Jules, aren't you? I'm very emotional. (laughs) Let it all out. But I said said to Sam, you know, my son, I said, that's it. I said, it's three years. This is my nemesis kind of thing. Every every three years, if I'm in business, it it ends, you know. And he just looked at me and he said, Mum, he said, you're made a different stuff to that. And it was the way he said that. And I thought, I can't let you down, Sam. I can't let you down. And so, yeah, um, we took everything. I say we because Sam kind of said, Mom, come on, you can put everything online that you do. And so I did. And and literally I have had as good a year, if not slightly better than last year, just did my year end, end of August. I'm really grateful that I was able to just carry on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What's the ethos behind Live It, Love It, Sell It? Okay, so... Sales of being in sales for 30 plus years, Matt, it's kind of what I do. I have to say, if you cut me in half, I'd probably say sales. So um, it's what I needed to do. And I was passionate about it, but I did not want to show up how I'd been taught how to sell all those years. So I wanted to create something that felt different because I believed sales was about relationships, human connection, conversation. And us being actually very unique as individuals. I think that's what sales is about, if I had to sum it up like that. So live it, love it, sell it was the methodology that I created around selling. And live it, it's a sales road trip, okay? Live it is are you fit to travel? So this is all the you stuff. This is where... Your mindset. 
your mindset, your fears, your values, your strengths. The love it is all about planning the route on your sales road trip. So who's your ideal customer? Actually, who do you truly want to connect with? Because actually, we don't want to sell to everyone, Matt. We just don't. Much as some of these companies think we need to scattergun everywhere. We don't. We want to connect with people who actually share the same values and understand what we really give as, as an outcome. And then sell it is the traveling the journey to get to the destination, which is showing up, getting visible, getting curious, getting helping. Um, so, yeah, that's the sales road trip of live it, love it, sell it. And it's very much based around human stuff as opposed to targets, revenues and figures and stuff. I mean, this echoes my story because I know we talked last time about a story that you had where you took a sales team, an underperforming sales team, and then grew it into an overperforming sales team using your exact methodology about yeah. relationship selling, building relationships with your customers, finding those ideal customers, and then just going out and doing it. And my mission, so my my whole ethos is around uh, setting one single goal, a mission, because of my army background, that's just how I function. But it is all through collaboration, empathy, and bringing people together to take part in that mission and find that end goal. Tell me a bit about your story about how you took this sales team from underperforming to overperforming. Yeah, so the team had a £6 million target. We were a venue, so we were selling space for conferences and meetings. And we were around four point something, I think, in terms of what we were going to achieve. So nearly a £2 million loss. That's that's a big loss. Yeah. Um, and there was 14 of us, and I was one of them. I was a national sales manager, and our boss would just walk around the office, a very quiet silent sales office which is a big red flag and saying sell more you know what do you want us to do boss sell more and that was the directive that we had from above and it was all about targets and all about numbers Um, and eventually he exited the the scene and in came Jules dumped in the middle of it all you're now head of sales sort it no training so I literally had to use all my gut instincts and I sat with all these guys who were my colleagues and I said, I need your help here. What are we good at? And individually, I just looked at all of them and said, what do you love doing? Why do you love working here? Why do our customers come here? And we literally started to talk about all those human elements and the connections and the conversations. And we put people in the right places. What sector are you really exceeding in, you know, excelling in and, um, and that was kind of how we we positioned everything. And we never talked about target. So every month when we met, it was like, what, where's your um, your wins? Um, but in terms of the customer, what did your customers say? What, how, what did that event look like? What did we do special? That's truly human, powerful, yeah. Human staff. And did you I ever, had a... Did you ever fo- no, that's all right. Did you ever focus on the, on the competition either? Um, Yeah, I think we were always very interested in what the competition were doing, but really clear that we were not them and they were not us. And I think that's a really powerful message. You know, it's fine to watch what they do, but don't get drawn in by it. Keep in your lane and keep focused on what you do well, because you're different. And your customer will choose you for a different reason. Um, So, you know, some venues had a bigger room than us. We couldn't have done those events. So why why get hung up on it, you know? But we also had a a screen where we had all of the figures displayed. And it was like a thermometer. I made it fun, dials and thermometers. But the fact is there was visibility of the target we were trying to achieve. Because you can't just say there's, there's no point looking at revenue. Revenue is what drives the business. 
But when you focus on revenue only before people, you get all sorts of issues start to go on, like missing target by 2 million. Yeah. yeah. So we switched it. And so we did not look at revenue. I got battered every board meeting about why we hadn't hit target or where we were figures wise. And I fielded that. Yeah. And I never pushed it back through to the team. So you kept that morale and excitement in the team about the people stuff. We smashed the target within 18 months. Our lead time to sale was six months. So within 18 months, we smashed the target by 180K. Yeah. So you massively turned it around. It wasn't about targets ever. It was always about humans and and the wonderful power and uniqueness of humans and connection. Which is all lovely and rosy and it's all touchy-feely and and that's what you want in an ideal situation. How do you then deal with underperformance in that situation? Yeah, I think underperformance is a really interesting one because I think that underperformance is often caused by focusing on things like target and numbers, personally, my experience. So I, I always just tried to get to the bottom of who the person was and what was driving them. And if if there's suddenly an underperformance, there could be a problem at home. There could be a problem with illness in the family or a dispute in the family. You know, there's always these underlying things that we have to explore before we suddenly hammer well, you need to up your ante and up your calls and whatever. So I was always in touch with who the individual person was in order to see why their behaviour was changing. And yeah. I think that's so, so important in leadership. And not everyone wants to be in sales, right? That's just a fact. Not everybody's a great salesperson. Or some people want to be in sales, but they're just not cut out for it. That's true yeah. also. But I had a team of 14 people who were wonderful salespeople, but had been suppressed. And so actually, we, we weren't seeing the real them at all. They were battered and on their knees. You know, so it was actually, my situation was lovely because all I was seeing was actually people flourishing as opposed to underperforming, if I'm really honest. Yeah. But I always think underperformance has a, an underlying reason, which we as leaders need to be responsible to find out. I think underperformance has two areas. Either they're underperforming because of the situation, which clearly your your team were. When you inherited them, they were two million behind, and that was a direct impact of the leadership. Yeah. Or uh, uh, there's probably three reasons actually. So the direct impact of the leadership, there's just not cut out for it, so they haven't got the capability to to perform at the level which is required. And I always use the analogy of when you take over a sales team or a, a company, I want my team to perform at premiership level. I want them to be a, a top-performing, high-functioning, quick, agile, and adapting team. Some of those players, when I'm taken over, they're in League One and League Two in terms of performance. And in any football team, you're going to transfer those players out and bring better players in. That's just those. And that's not to say that the League One, League Two players haven't got a place because they have in teams which can perform at that level. However, when you want a high-performing team, you need to bring in the players that are suitable. And then the other one is they just don't have the clear direction or the motivation. And that, again, comes from the leadership. But And it could be the underperformance and just attitude and mindset. And that's the that's their personal circumstances. So, yeah, it can be. And don't forget, the best salesperson can have a blip because of something else that's going on outside. Oh, yeah, totally. Now, one of the other things that I did with my team, Matt, is I brought a guy who was on reception, on reception, into my team to sell. And everybody was a little bit, oh, my God. What, what are you doing? And I said, this guy is amazing on reception. He's like a magnet. Everybody loves him. They love him. He'd got the most wonderful personality in the world. I took a massive, massive risk. 
to, to bring him into the sales team. My boss was like, are you sure? Are you sure? I'm not sure about this. And I said, yeah, I'm absolutely positive. And he is still in that business. He is still a manager. Wow. He's actually a promoted manager now in that business. And I knew that he was the one for one reason only, because he could connect to people. And so everybody loved him and everybody bought him, people buy people, and he smashed every single target that he ever had. It's funny because I've got a very similar story. I had, when I inherited a team in my last company, I had a guy in my team who could support everybody. Uh, I mean, like be their support person, like field their quotes, send out their quotes, do all of that stuff internally. But when you put him in front of a phone in order to make calls, he, was, he would just freeze. And he would use the old cliche phrases. I'm just coming. I'm just calling to check in. I'm just and and all of that stuff, which he wasn't naturally able to do sales. So what I did was, and and the, exactly the same as you, my board wanted to push him out of the business, and I was fielding that and saying no, he's got a value to this business. And it got to a crescendo point where we were either going to let him go, or he he had to perform. So basically, it was his ultimatum. And what we did was, is I shuffled him around the business, and we moved him into an IT support function. And he then became the support person that all the salespeople could call on in order to deliver all of their stuff. Oh, I need the, I need this reference for this quote. I need this, this, and this. And his value went up in the business. And now he's still in that business, and he is now head of support services. So they've created a separate function, a separate area of the business. And honestly, now that sales team is able to function far quicker and far easier because they're more agile, they're more adept, and they've got this person they can call on. So it is about putting round pegs in round holes you can't always force a square peg through that round hole. Sometimes no. it'll work because yeah. the, the hole's bigger, but <laughs> you get yeah. where I'm coming from. Yeah, but also I think the added thing for me with this whole sales methodology that I believe in is that it's about also the focus you give the salespeople. And every it, it, the best salespeople will underperform because they're battered on numbers and, and revenue only. I, and I know that. I've seen it again and again and again and again. And that's one of the things I want to try and change in the sales world is yeah. this incessant obsession with making figures first. Right? And I know, I get it. We need revenue to run a business, but you try the people first bit and your figures will be more than you've ever had before. See, but- I think I'm from the other camp and I like... I like I like the numbers and I like having because how can you identify high performing salespeople without the numbers? You need to have the numbers in order you to You have got the numbers. The yeah. numbers are there. The numbers never and I, go away. And I but love that sense not, of competition. Yeah, but you do not focus on the numbers. Okay. You yeah. focus on the customer first. That's the first hundred percent. Yeah. And from that, then you can build back to numbers. And if you want to celebrate numbers, you can. But you have to be aware that not everyone wants to do that. Everybody does not function at their highest productivity just because of numbers. And that's the biggest yeah. mistake we make in sales. No, it's a true story. I promise <laughs> you. I mean, how do you turn a team of 14 round like that with no numbers? And I, that's exactly what I did. We did not ever focus on numbers. Yes, we celebrated when we felt like it. It was visible. And we knew what we were all driving towards, by the way, because we had to drive to revenue ultimately. But we never, ever used that as the key thing that we loved and that we flourished on and that we enjoyed as a team. Yeah, I, I'm going to agree to disagree because outstanding leadership would also give you those results. And, and clearly your leadership... And the way that you lead, and I'm not saying it's a, a creation of circumstances that 
because you had that situation that that's why you gain that result because obviously it does work and you've worked in various different industries. Mm. I think there are various different methodologies that can succeed in different industries and it, and it's and it's situational as well. Um, yeah, but I think what what happens when, for me, in, in my experience of numbers, um, is that every time numbers takes over or becomes a focus, the customer loses out because we batter and batter and batter and, and it will stick. Oh, we'll hit the numbers. We sure will hit those numbers. We yeah. will do it because we batter and we batter and we batter. Where's the customer relationships? Where are the customers for life? Where are the customers who then tell other people about you who create new customers for you without you even realising? I think you can do that on the journey. That's not done on numbers. That's done on a journey of relationship, but it is never done on numbers. And if you just focus on numbers first, is what I'm saying, that's not going to create the ideal sales situations. That's actually win-win for everybody. Because that's the key. It's not just about us winning and us hitting our numbers. It's about everybody feeling like this is a great relationship. Yeah, sales isn't a one-way thing. Yeah, Yeah. it's a two-way thing. Exactly. The the customer needs to buy into you and you need to buy into the customer. You definitely need to support each other. The way I get around the numbers game is that my number is set five years ahead. So it's not a number which needs to be hit this year. It's not a number which needs to be hit next year. I'm setting a business plan which is five years ahead so my my goal for this company is five million in five years everybody knows that that's the end result that's where we want to get to in five years if we don't hit that budget this year we know that the goal is so far away that we've got time to accelerate and move forwards yeah and the focus then remains on the customer but there is still that end mission that's where the that's where the war is going to be won is that on that five million in five years yeah the the customer will win you that war Matt. exactly yeah yeah, and, that, and it's about I think bringing them along that journey. That's my point, really, is that I, I completely understand you have to have numbers and revenue. It's, you know, you can't not. But believe you me, that if you just keep it as a customer relationship type of journey, and that remains the focus, not only do your people enjoy it more and actually flourish more, you will hit those targets every time with yeah. the right customers. You know, I every day on LinkedIn now, I'm being battered with cold emails. Oh, God, Every yeah. day. Every day. This is the numbers game, Matt. That's what it produces. Uh, I'm not saying you guys do. No, no. Well, you will be doing it different. I know that. But the numbers game generically creates that. Yes. And I put yeah. a, a poll out on LinkedIn last week, I think it was, asking yes or no. Do you buy? Do you buy from cold email? Do you? Never. of people said no, and 1%, one person has said yes. And when I looked at the profile, they actually sell via cold email. (laughs) Now, you know, listen, I'm not trying to say we should never be thinking about numbers, but I think it's about us as leaders potentially to think about the numbers, but feel that away from our people because our people have this wonderful uniqueness, our UHP, a unique human proposition that is why people will suddenly say that company's different. They feel different. They want me as their customer. They're interested in me. Now that is a good sales team. Yeah, a hundred percent. And take it back to that in-mail. The whole purpose of their of these in-mails and these direct messages is to try and sell. If we flip that and the person who is sending those in-mails or, or direct messages actually just tries to build the relationship with the customer first. So if I was to DM and email you, 
I would try and understand what your needs are, what you're what what are you struggling with right now. If it's a fit, it fits. And this is going back to the customer again, and it's a two-way journey. If it doesn't fit, you're in my network. I know I might know somebody who can help you. And it's about widening that network. If everybody on this podcast, the audience, listened to that advice and then took that away and then passed that advice out, we'd see less of these poor, cold DMs and we'd see a wider network growing, which is better for everybody. I I agree. And I think the other thing about this whole social selling and, and the fact we're all online now and we don't really meet and talk perhaps how we used to. I think the key thing about this is understanding the buyer is 70% already down that buying journey before they even speak to you as a salesperson. And if we know that, then what we need to think about is that we're now in marketing. So actually, we're now out there in front of them before they even want to buy from us, showing who we are and our personal brand and what we're good at. And when when they want to buy what we've got, we'll be on their shortlist because they've been watching and following us. That's now how sales is working. It's fascinating. It is truly fascinating. Uh, so we're just coming up to the end of the podcast, Jules. And what we do on every single episode is ask the same five questions. So the first question I'm going to ask you is, what did you want to be when you grew up? Yes, so this was an air hostess. So the story was also <laughs> that um, in my day, uh, when you were applying, you had to be a certain height. I think it was something like five foot ten or something. And I was too short. So I couldn't be an air hostess. Was this just because of looks? Was it aesthetics? I think so. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> you know, I can't see any other reason. Um, Unless you needed to reach the overhead lockers. That's well, the only maybe, other. but, you know, even, well, they do today. Yeah. And I doubt they've got restrictions on height. I shouldn't think it's allowed. <laughs> it, so. No. <laughs> What's the worst job that you could ever do and why? Yeah, this was um, anything like accounts, you know, accountant, something like that. So numbers, funnily enough, <laughs> <laughs> funnily enough, my dislike of numbers. But I think if it was like numbers all day long, it would be really mind numbing for me. Although I do like a spreadsheet. Yeah. You know, it shows me a story. I quite like a spreadsheet. But if I was just pushing numbers all day, it would drive me nuts. It's just mundane. Yeah. And, and there are people that are out there, and this goes back to the outsourcing. I would outsource it when my business gets to the level that I need to. I mean, I've got a guy in, in the Valve business now who does all of the numbers. I say what the sales numbers should be. He works out the budgets and all the overheads and everything like that behind the scenes. And then he says yes or no, yeah. whether that number fits. And then I go back to the drawing board. So in my own business, as soon as I get to the stage where I need an accountant, that's the first thing I'm going to outsource yeah. because I, I don't want to do it. I have an amazing accountant. He's yeah. fabulous. <laughs> but they love that stuff. Yeah. They love it. Yeah. yeah. But they only see life in black and white, which is a struggle for salespeople because salespeople can see different shades of grey. Yeah. So they can see the solutions that they can offer. Who is the leader that you look up to the most, Jules? Oh, yes. This was a guy, uh, actually, I have recently met. He came on my own podcast and he's called Kevin Gaskell. So he's written a book, which is, I think, called Inspired Leadership. And uh, he's just like so cool. He's all about people. That's kind of his whole philosophy um, and obviously coming from the leadership place. But he also rode the Atlantic. Uh, um, I think he was in his late 50s, early 60s. He's fit as a fiddle. He just does, climbs all sorts of mountains and it, everything about him is really inspirational. And just his whole philosophy is dare to dream. So, yeah, I, I like his stuff. Um, what was the worst sales mistake that you've ever made? Uh, well, I think last time, I asked last time. <laughs> I think 
I think I answered this because I couldn't remember a real specific, which is terrible. But, you know, all the years I've been in sales, there's, there's probably been a few. Um, I mean, it would probably be something like promising a delivery that, that we couldn't deliver or getting a price wrong. They were the common kind of bad mistakes. Yeah. But I think for me now it's about selling to the wrong person, you know, going a bit deeper. I would hate to be working with someone who doesn't kind of share values or get what we're trying to do together. I think that would be really, really tough. So, yeah, for me right now in my business, that would that would not be good. And this also goes down to the marketing as well. You said that um, buyers are now 70% along their journey. So we are marketers as well as salespeople. Yeah, yeah. And you can't market to everybody. You can't you, – you need to market to the right people. And when – like week one, day one of marketing training is find your ideal buyer. And that's what we have to do as salespeople as well. So we have to find our ideal buyer who has the right budget, who has the right ethos, the right beliefs, and has the need. There's a lot that goes into a sale. It's not just, I'm going to rock up and sell you something. Yeah, no, there is. But equally, the other part of it for me is be you. Just yeah. be you, for goodness sake. Stop trying to be anything you're not, because actually that's where you'll make the greatest connections. So true. So, yeah. And the final question on the podcast, Jules, is what was the last book that you read? Right. So um, the last book, well, that I am currently reading is Survival Skills for Freelancers, which, of course, is Sarah's book. Right? <laughs> That's Sarah's book. That's Sarah Townsend, who was on, I think, your last episode. This one is a book I have finished reading because I am quite terrible that I don't always finish books very quick. Forces for Good. It's all about the fact that it's business is about people, planet and profit. Really lovely overview of how you can actually fulfill all of those needs in a business. So it's great, great book. And please tell everyone about Live It, Love It, Sell It, which is my book. Of course I will. I'll tell you what, we'll we'll include, get your book back up and we'll take a photo for the, the, there you go. Perfect. (laughs) Put it on the socials. So yeah, so those are my books that I'm uh, dabbling in at the moment. Thank you very much for coming back on, Jules. Where can people find more information about you? So, yeah, live it, love it, sell it is kind of your mantra. If you put that into Google, you can find all of the places I am, including my website. And I have a link tree link, which has all of the links on, which I think you're going to... I'll put that in the show notes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And thank you so much. I have loved chatting to you again. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much for coming back on, Jules. I appreciate it. Have a great day. And you.